in Psalms 103 and 10. The Bible says this. It says, He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Verse 11. For as, as the heaven is high above the earth, it's a comparison here. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is His mercy toward them that fear Him. As high as the heaven is above the earth, so great is His mercy toward them that fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath He removed our transgressions from us. Like a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear Him. Lord Jesus, we pray for Your blessing upon the ministry of the Word today. We crave, Lord Jesus, and desire the anointing that destroys the yoke of the enemy. Be upon us, Lord. Let Your will be accomplished, Jesus. Let Your purpose be done in this place. Prepare our hearts today to hear the Word of the Lord. Prepare us to receive, Jesus, what thus saith the Lord. We ask these blessings and this favor in Your name and for the glory of the kingdom of God. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. God bless you and you may be seated. We had a little uh, stress around the house yesterday. It was time for my wife to go to work and uh, we couldn't find the keys. Has that ever happened to anybody before? And uh, I looked everywhere. I looked, is it in the truck? Are they in my room? And Are they in the regular places? And then we started to tear the, the sofa apart. All the cushions came off the sofa. And uh, uh, finally, we found the keys in my daughter Eden's room in the corner of the room uh, under some stuff. And uh, so we were grateful to find them. Now, if you think about it, what is it about a key that's so important? Because really, this little wad is not that uh, uh, valuable. If you just think about it in terms of what you have here, it's not that valuable. But these keys possess their value based on what they grant me access to. And so the key is not that valuable. The transportation and the car that it accesses is very valuable. The key is not that valuable, but access into my home and all my belongings and materials is very, very valuable. And today I want to talk for a few moments about the key to God's mercy. The key to God's mercy. Keys are important as they represent rights of usage and passage, whether it's a beautiful home or a brand new car. How many would love to move into a beautiful 4,000 square foot home? Wouldn't that be awesome? How many would like to be the first one to put the key into the ignition and turn on a brand new Mercedes or BMW or a Cadillac or Corvette? Or Ford Taurus. <laughs> hey, as long as it's new. Amen. Now, a key can also be something different than this. A key can be an access code. Uh, it may be a list of numbers. It may be your daughter's name or your son's name and a couple of numbers that you use these this code or this key to get into your uh, network key or to get into a program to be able to 
surf the web and enjoy all the access to the internet, if you have the key, you have access to the greater thing. Whether it's to the automobile, whether it's to the computer program, or whether it's to the world wide web. And I want to talk about special key today. It's not a key to a house or a key to a car or a key to a computer program. Something much more important than that. It's not the key to financial success. It's not the key to success in relationships. I haven't come to talk to you about the key to a good marriage or the key to career advancement. But I've come to talk to you about a much more important key than that. I want to talk today about the key to God's mercy. Everyone say the word mercy. Just say mercy right now. God's mercy. Mercy is a broad term that can refer to benevolence or forgiveness or kindness. And in general, when you hear the word mercy, it means withholding the judgment that one deserves. Withholding the judgment that one deserves instead of receiving what you deserve, you receive mercy. There's three ways that we see mercy in operation in the Bible. One way is those who are about to be destroyed, who beg the mercy of an opposing army or an opposing king or an individual. Please don't destroy. I understand you have the power to take control and to destroy and to ravage our land. Please have mercy. Another way, those who recognized Jesus' miracles in the Bible and asked him to show mercy and to heal them or to meet a need for them or to heal a loved one. They would cry out like Bartimaeus did, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. Another way we see mercy in operation in the word of God is for those who have sinned against God and are asking to be forgiven so that they can have a fresh start. So hopefully maybe you're getting a grasp an understanding that the most valuable thing that you can have access to is the mercy of God. Because you can't be saved without accessing God's mercy. The Bible says all have sinned. And because of that, we are deserving to receive God's judgment. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So it doesn't matter if you've been raised in a good home and you've done your best to be a good person your whole life. Without being able to access the mercy of God, you cannot be saved. You can't have a miracle in your family or a miracle in your body without learning how to access the mercy of God. And I want to tell you today that if you want to count value as this world counts value or kingdom value, either way, there's nothing more valuable for you to be able to slip the key and open the door and begin to access the blessings of than the mercies of God. God's mercy is something that all of us are desperately every day in need of. Amen. Now, I want to address a misconception in our world today that uh, has been foisted upon society as a result of uh, what may be called uh, easy believism or a, a, a gross manipulation of the concept of the grace and mercy of God has given to people that the impression that we all deserve salvation or that we all deserve God's favor. And just like, you know, in culture, it's reached the point where it doesn't matter how the child performs in school, they're all supposed to get A's because we're concerned about their self-esteem. 
And it doesn't matter uh, who wins the contest. You can't say that this person won and this person lost because the prime or the, the prime priority in our culture is what? Well, we've got to protect people's self-esteem. And that has even bled into Christianity and bled into people's thinking about the things of God to where we give this impression that uh, everybody wins, that everybody wins. And I'm sorry if this hurts your self-esteem, but I've got to tell you the truth today. Not everyone wins. And not everyone just automatically has access to God's mercy just because they're breathing, just because they're a human being, and just because they're alive. The Bible says, in fact, that God is a righteous judge. Righteous judge. Now, what is a righteous judge? If somebody, would you say somebody is a righteous judge if no matter what happens, they always let the person who was the perpetrator go free and they never execute punishment on the perpetrator? In fact, when we see a, a heinous or a gross crime uh, uh, performed, we are anxious to see justice done. And even though families may not be bloodthirsty, if they have a loved one who has been killed, beaten, molested by some grievous person, they want to see justice served. And a righteous judge will give what the law says. A righteous judge will do what the law tells him to do. And since God is a righteous judge, we get, according to His judgment, what we deserve. Without the mercy of God, it's guaranteed you will get what you deserve. Without the mercy of God, His Word is clear that the wages of sin is death. If you break the law, you pay the consequences. Go ahead and speed if you want to, but if you speed, you pay the ticket. Go ahead and live recklessly in this world and ignore the laws of the land if you want to, but you'll be hauled before a righteous judge in a, in a physical, earthly court, and you will have to pay the consequences for your actions. And this modern concept of God and this misconception of Jesus, I like people who, uh, who present Jesus as a you know, soft, softer version of the God of the Old Testament. And they do this by only taking certain statements of Jesus and saying, see, Jesus was not judgmental. Jesus loved everybody. And we know that Jesus loved everybody, but Jesus made it clear that those that ignored His commandments and would not do the will of the Father would not be a part of the kingdom of God and were subject to the judgment of God. I'm telling you the truth, so say amen. Amen. And so this misconception about God's sovereignty has created this mentality in human beings that God's going to just cover it all in the end. And when I stand before the righteous judge, because Jesus is good and because He loves me, that my sins will be forgiven, mercy will be extended, and I will be all right. See, if you do not believe that judgment is coming to the wicked, you guys listen to me? If you don't believe that judgment is coming to the wicked, then you will not value mercy. Because you do not understand the essentiality and the necessity and the importance of mercy. And so if I'm preaching to you today and I begin to preach about the key of accessing God's mercy, you can just cast it off and ignore it. 
if you don't believe that judgment is coming. But as I stand before you here today, men will account for their deeds. Women will account for the deeds. The Bible says we have to give an account of every idle word that is given. See, the Bible, it's my responsibility as a, as a minister to preach the full counsel of the Word of God. And that means we talk about God's grace and mercy. But we also talk about the judgment of God. Because I can't sit here and lie to you because it makes me more popular or because it makes you feel better. All right? You have to hear the truth. And the reality is without God's mercy, you don't have a hope in this world. Without, go, without God's mercy, let me say it this way, you're going to hell like a bullet. Without God's mercy, you're going to experience eternal damnation. That's why the good news is good news. It's not good news just because it makes me feel good and gives me goosebumps. No, hey, Jesus conquered death and came out of the grave. The good news is, is you are going to hell. But Jesus Christ made a way of escape for you. And once you grasp the reality... That my iniquity or my sin will keep me out of heaven. Let me make this plain to you. And I don't care if you can speak in tongues or not. Your sin will keep you out of heaven. I don't care if you've been baptized in Jesus' name or not. Continued sin will keep you out of heaven. I don't care if you come to church every week. Continued sin will keep you out of heaven. They stood before Jesus Christ and they said, Hey, we cast out evil spirits in your name. Did all manner of good works in your name. Jesus said, Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. That means you're a sinner. You're still doing evil things. You're still breaking God's law presumptuously. He said, Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I never knew you. Amen. Now listen to me today because I want to save your soul with the help of the gospel and through the power of the word of God. I want to be the best friend that you ever had. Amen. The best friend that you ever had is the one that's going to help you be saved eternally. Because we're not talking about some trifling matter here. Amen. We're not talking about which school you decide to attend or what career you decide to pursue. We're talking about eternity, which is forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Hey, come on, somebody. You're going to spend eternity somewhere. And with that in mind, it's, you better, better well know how to access God's mercy. If you don't have the keys to God's mercy, you can try for the rest of your life to be a good person and you can't get in. It's the key of God's mercy. The key to God's mercy that gives you access to the riches of glory. Psalm 711 says, God judgeth the righteous. And God is angry with the wicked every day. Did you know that? Did you know that? God is angry with sin. And the wrath of God is going to be unleashed in the end against man's unrighteousness and rejection of the law of God. God hates sin and God will judge sin. John 3.36 said, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. It means that it is lingering on him. Romans eleven twenty two says it this way. says, Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God. And so if you want balance, you've got to understand God's goodness, but you also have to understand his severity. We were studying James chapter 1. If you want to avoid temptation, you've got to, number one, think about the judgment that's coming if you sin. But then also think about the goodness of God and how good He's been to you. 
says, On them which fell, severity, but toward thee goodness, if thou continue in his goodness. Otherwise also shalt thou be cut off. You've got to get this point. I've got to get this through your brains right now. Because if you don't, you won't care about what I have to say about the key to God's mercy. If you think your conduct and your actions don't matter, that God's uh, 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 sacrifice on Calvary is a blanket for everything that's going to come in your life, then you won't care what I have to say about accessing God's mercy. Amen? God's mercy is the, mercy is the act of sparing a violent act that's expected. And if you don't expect judgment, you won't value mercy. Now, the first time the word mercy is mentioned in the Bible, you say, why does it matter whether it was first or last? There's a, a, a hermeneutical law, a law in studying Scripture, and that means that the first time a word or a phrase or a concept or a doctrine is mentioned in Scripture, it has special significance to all kind of like a foundation for the doctrine of this principle. And the first time we see the word mercy mentioned is when Sodom and Gomorrah is getting ready to be destroyed and fire is about to fall from heaven to destroy this city and its wickedness. And the Bible says God showed mercy. The first time mercy is mentioned is when it's referred to Lot and his family being spared the judgment of God, which was falling upon wicked Sodom and Gomorrah. And so we understand this principle, the judgment that's coming, the just judgment that's coming, God's sovereign judgment that's coming. We have the opportunity to escape it through this power of mercy. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 15 says, Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, uh, I, we, we live in a world where we don't hear, even in Christianity, any preaching about hell about the final judgment. And and think about it. I mean, really, that's kind of irresponsible. If the Bible talks about it, if Jesus speaks about it, if it's prophesied, but we never share with people the reality because it's uncomfortable, because uh, people can easily choose to go somewhere else where they never hear about it, we fail to remind people that every person will stand before the righteous judge and their deeds will be judged and every person is eternal and will either have eternal life in heaven or will experience eternal damnation in the lake of fire. See, I'm trying to make this meaningful to you. I've got to prepare your appetite for access to God's mercy because if you don't believe what I'm telling you, you won't care whether you got the key to God's mercy. But when you understand that God is sovereign, that God is a God of truth, He does not lie. You know, sometimes parents will threaten their kids, and it's, a, it's an empty threat because they don't plan on following through with it. They're just trying to manipulate their children through fear. God doesn't use empty threats. Amen. We shout and celebrate the fact that God's Word is for sure. We celebrate the fact that God's promises can be counted on. Right? If you give, it comes back to you. We celebrate. Never seen the righteous forsaken or a seed begging bread. We celebrate. But we must understand that the other side of the coin is true. If God declared that there is judgment coming, 
If God declared that there is a place called hell and will be judged according to our works, then we must understand that God's promises are true and God's Word is true. And while we don't harp on this or rally around it continuously, it's irresponsible for us as members of the kingdom of God not to share with one another and even share to the outsiders. Without accessing God's mercy, you're out of hope. I'm out of hope. And you know what? See, it doesn't. here's the problem. It doesn't seem fair in our mind. When we think about that, we say, well, God is righteous and God is a loving God and He's merciful. He's a heavenly Father. And it seems impossible that someone who is that loving would do such a thing like punishing someone for eternity. It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't work in my mindset. And so I reject it. Listen to me. I reject it, even though this is what the Bible says. I'm going to impose my concept of justice and my concept of morality on God. And since it doesn't seem fair to me, and I must be the final authority, and our culture must be the final authority, and everybody feels this way, so this must be the truth. And what God said was just some... What the Bible reports is what God says is somebody's archaic misconception of the severity of God. And we create a false God based on our finite sense of fairness and justice. Isn't it possible that His ways are above our ways? Isn't it possible that His sense of justice is developed much beyond our sense of justice? Isn't it possible, amen, that God actually knows what He's doing? Think about it. And that just because I don't understand it or appreciate it or like it, doesn't mean that I get to impose what I think on the world. Man, that's foolishness. That's folly for us to assume since it doesn't fit our concept of fairness and our idea of the way a righteous or a loving God would act, that that's not the way it is. The Bible says, Who hath known the mind of the Lord? Who hath been His counselor? Who am I to stand up and say, Well, I believe this, so God, you're going to have to listen to what I have to say because I really pretty much am in sync with what culture believes and thinks about these things. Amen. i got to tell the truth. If we get what we deserve, then all of us get death. If we get what we deserve, all of us get eternal judgment. The wicked are already condemned to hell. God's wrath is lingering on them. Do you understand that? That's a New Testament scripture. That's a New Testament word is that people who are living in sin, the wrath of God is hovering over them. It is only God's mercy that is keeping them from experiencing even right now and today. And only by God's mercy are we spared. And instead of damnation, because of God's mercy, we have the hope to receive or inherit, the Bible says, eternal life. And with that in mind, I want to tell you, my heart's desire is I need your mercy, Lord. God, smile upon me. God, extend your mercy to me. Father in heaven, have mercy on me. Have mercy on my family. Don't give me what I deserve. Don't give me what I deserve, but have, have mercy on my wife. Have mercy on my children. Have mercy on me. Jesus, thou son of David. Jesus, thou son of David. Have mercy. I need your mercy. And that's, of course, the story of the Bible is that Jesus Christ, the righteous, 
died as a substitute and received God's wrath in place of us. While he was on the cross, being beaten, spat upon, experiencing the utmost torture and pain that a human being could possibly do. It wasn't the men that were doing it. It was God's wrath being poured out upon the spotless or substitutionary lamb in our place. That's why when we consider what Jesus did for us, you need to remember he was doing it in your place. He was taking God's wrath for you. So Jesus suffered so you don't have to. The lamb was slain and the blood was shed so we don't have to experience the judgment that Jesus Christ experienced in our place. Jesus paid it all. And the blood of the sacrifice, the blood of Jesus Christ, is to be applied to our life. Just like in the Old Testament, when the judgment of the death angel was coming over the entire land of Egypt, the blood was applied to the doorposts in the Hebrew house. They, they slew a lamb, they captured the blood, they dipped a hyssop, and they applied it three times to the doorpost. And when the angel saw the blood applied three times, he passed over that house, and that house was spared the righteous judgment and the wrath of God. It was a lamb that was slain as a substitute, and the blood that was applied to the doorpost. The Bible lets us know, we understand this, that we have the blood applied to our lives by obeying God's gospel plan. Jesus died on the cross for us, and we apply His blood when we give our life to Him in repentance. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter said unto them, Repent. And when you give your life to the Lord, turn away from the old life and turn to a new life and say, I'm not going to be that person anymore. I want to be this person. Uh, the blood of Jesus is applied in one spot to our life. And then when we're water baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, the Bible says in Peter, water baptism doth also now save us. Uh, not the fact that we're getting wet, but it's the answer of our conscience towards God. There is an application of blood to our life again so that the Lamb of God that was slain, His blood is being applied to us. And when we receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the blood of the Lamb is flowing through the process of death, burial, and resurrection and repentance and water baptism and spirit baptism Three strikes and you're in the kingdom of God. Amen. Three applications of the blood. And, and even though you may have been a sinner, you may have murdered people, you may have been a rapist, you can experience God's grace and mercy on your life. And you don't get eternally from God what you deserve, but you get mercy. Can somebody say thank you, Jesus? Can somebody say thank God for His grace and mercy? It means that the riches of heaven... God's grace and blessings and mercy is extended to us, made available to us through Christ's sacrifice. God's riches at Christ's expense is an acronym for grace. It was Jesus that paid the price so we could get the key and have access to the blessings and the favor of God. Amen. Let's give our, put our hands together and thank God for that. I hasten... To the question of the hour. The question of the hour in this household is not how do you access salvation. I think we're clear that by having faith in Jesus Christ, giving our lives to Him in repentance, being water baptized, and receiving the Holy Spirit is the access. God gave Peter the keys. Peter gave the keys to the people. Here's how you get in the kingdom. Repent, be baptized, receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. But the question of the hour that I want to address to you in your hearing today 
is, first of all, if we believe and obey the gospel, are we saved? And the answer is yes. Here's the next question. If we obey the gospel and continue in our sins, are we saved? The answer is no. We are workers of iniquity. And there are no workers of iniquity in the kingdom of God. Amen? 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, says, Don't be deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves, of mankind, so on and so forth, shall be a part of the kingdom. And then, of course, the passage in Matthew, the words of Jesus himself, said these have no access to the kingdom of God. So you say, are you working for your salvation? No, here, here's, you've got to catch this now. Catch this. You don't work for your salvation. You work out your salvation. Jesus is the one that purchased our salvation, so we don't earn our salvation. Amen? Because here, catch this. No amount of right living can make up for the sins you already did before you heard the message of Jesus. It is the message of the cross and faith in the message of the cross in response to the gospel message that deals with the sin of the past and puts you in position to God's grace and mercy and favor going forward. Guess what God's grace is? God's grace is a safety net. And once I've been saved, I start walking the tightrope of righteousness. I'm living for Jesus now. Amen. I'm not going to the left or to the right. I'm staying in the middle. I'm staying in the center. And there are times in my experience with God when I will stumble. Can I get an amen? amen. And I'm going to fall. And I'm going to pirouette downward. And I'm going to be caught by God's grace and mercy. But see, those who miss the whole point are those that turn God's grace and mercy's safety net into a hammock for compromise to live however they want to live and do whatever they want to do. And they have misused, misappropriated, misunderstood God's grace and mercy and become a worker of iniquity. And workers of iniquity will not have a part in the kingdom of God. And it's important for you to get this message. Amen? God's forgiveness, God's grace, God's mercy, God's blood is there for you. But He did not give it to you so you could continue in sin. He told the woman, He that is without uh, sin cast the first stone. There were no stones cast. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you, but, but, but go and sin no more. Amen. There's only one legitimate response to the mercy of God, and that is to change your ways and to understand and reverence the fact that God made salvation available to you who did not deserve salvation. Amen. So I want to talk to you here. I, I'm, I'm getting finally to my point, the key here, the key to God's mercy. Uh, Sarah, if you can put up Psalms 103:11, Psalms chapter 103, verse 11. I want you to get this point. It says, For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is His mercy toward them that fear Him. Them. Well, let's look at Psalms 103, verse 17. Jump to verse 17. It says, But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. Come on, I want you to get this point. As high as the heaven is from the earth, that's how great God's mercy is. From everlasting to everlasting, that's how vast God's mercy is. There is no containing God's mercy. And somebody better say, Thank you, Jesus. Because you know that if we got what we deserved, it'd be bad. 
But God's mercy is from everlasting to everlasting. God's mercy is as high as the heaven, in terms of vastness, as high as the heaven is from the earth. But get the key here. Upon them that fear him. Go back to verse 11 again. Upon them that fear him. Uh, uh, great is his mercy toward them that fear him. Let's jump into the New Testament. These are the words of Mary. Luke chapter 1 and verse 50. As she responds to the Lord. Luke chapter 1, verse number 50. What does it say? Talking about the key here. The key to access God's mercy. And His mercy is on them that fear Him from generation to generation. I want to get you to get this in your brain right now. This is the key to the most valuable thing you could ever get access to. You can take advantage of, you can use it, you can enjoy it. It is a great, blessed uh, uh, thing to be able to access. But here's the key. The fear of God, the fear of the Lord, is what grants you access to the mercies of God. And there is no promise of God's mercies upon them who do not fear the Lord. Did you get that or do I need to impress that further onto your brain right now? This is better than a key to your Mercedes. This is a better than a key to your new home. Come on now. This is better than a key or access code to a Swiss bank account. This is a key to the mercies of God. This is a key to God's favor and blessings on you and your family going forward. It is. God's mercy is heavy on them. God's mercy is boundless on them. God's mercy is huge on those that fear Him. Those that fear the Lord. The fear of God. The fear of God. What is this fear of God? Matthew 10 and 28 says it this way. These are the words of Jesus. Jesus said, Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear Him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Understand that it doesn't matter what people think about you. And it doesn't matter what people say to you. It matters what God thinks about you. And it matters that your heart is right with God. Because you can punch me in the eye and give me a black eye. You could take a gun and shoot me through the heart and end my life. But you have no access to mess with the next life. But there is one who when my fleeting life is over and when the vapor of this life is gone, I'm going to spend eternity either in hell or in heaven. And you better fear the one who has the power to determine your eternal destination. See, I've always wondered why was God so harsh with King Saul? And so merciful to King David. They both sinned. They both ignored God's principles. They both broke God's laws. If you want to measure in terms of worse or better, you could make a strong argument that David's breaking of the law was more grievous than Saul's. Come on now. David murdered a man. Stole, well, he stole a woman that was another man's wife, impregnated her, murdered her husband so he wouldn't uh, become guilty before the
the eyes of men, took her in as his wife. That's grievous. Amen. That's pretty grievous. What did Saul do? Saul kind of negotiated with the commandment of God and did not completely execute what God told him to do with the Amalekites. Right? And then the next day it was taken care of because Samuel showed up and finished the work. But here's the problem. Here's the difference. David feared God. Saul feared man. Saul was more concerned about what the people thought about him. I can show you. We read it in our Bibles this week, didn't we? Where he said, after Samuel gave the word from God, which is, I've removed the kingdom from you. I've taken my favor off of you. I'm going to give your kingdom to someone else because you not obeyed my law. Saul, rather than falling on his face, said to Samuel, Okay, I'll deal with it. But please, Samuel, come with me into the camp so that the people still think that I have a connection with God. It didn't matter to him as much about whether God was finished with him or not. He was more concerned about what the people thought. Are you with me? But when David was confronted with his sin, he fell on his face and in sackcloth and ashes and for several days said, God, be merciful to me. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Lord Jesus, I've got to be right with you. I've got, I don't care if people mock me and laugh at me. See, David was the one that took off his kingly robes and would dance in front of the people. And his mother, who was influenced by, or his wife, Michael, who was influenced by Saul's way of thinking because he was Saul's daughter, said, but you look like this in front of the people. David said, I don't care about what the people think. I was doing that for God. The fear of God is the access code, is the key to God's mercy. It opens the door to heaven's storehouse. And without this key, without the fear of God, you can't get in. If you don't have a fear of God, you can't access the mercy. If you lose the fear of God... You can't access God's mercy. I'm sorry, I can't get you in. Your mom and dad can't get you in. You work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You've got to have that key if you're going to access the, the presence of God. Amen. Somebody, I'm telling you right now, and you've got to get this point. If you've lost the fear of God, you better find it. I said you better find it. Because without the fear of God, you have no access to God's mercy. And your only possible destination is judgment. God, help us find the key. Let us protect. So let's talk about the fear of God for just a second. People said, the fear of God? What are you talking about? The fear of God is not like a fear where you like fear a lion. So anytime a lion comes around, you get like scared. Although, I mean, I've been living, what, 38, almost 39 years. I've never come in contact with a lion. He's never walked up to me. But I have seen snakes before. And I'm not too excited about them. One time I was running down the path and I saw a snake and I was like, Ugh. or a ghost. Anybody scared of spooky houses? Or? No, you don't have to admit. But 
That's not what the fear of God is. It's not talking about being terrified, shaking, or fearful. The word fear of God in these passages in Scripture, which I could have read dozens of them to you, fear of God being the beginning of wisdom. The word fear is derived from the Hebrew words hira, yare, and pakhad, which actually means fear, terror, or dread. And there are Christian teachers will, that will downplay the fear of God and use replacement words like respect, reverence, or honor. But the Hebrew language is pretty clear. As I mentioned, some redefine the fear of God for believers to respecting Him. While respect is definitely included in the concept of the fear of God, there is more to it than that. A biblical fear of God for the believer, get this now, includes clearly understanding how much God hates sin and being fearful of His judgment upon sin. Even though you're a believer, even though you're spirit-filled. Are you getting the point now? The fear of God is understanding God's hatred of sin and understanding God's promise of judgment of sin. So guess what? Because you obeyed the gospel and because you've been spirit-filled and because you spoke in tongues and because you danced and felt the presence of God, that doesn't give you right to do away with your key to God's mercy. You've got to keep that key. Because my brothers and sisters, there are going to be times when you need the mercy of God. There's going to be times when you need the mercy of God. You say, well, how would I lose that kind of a thing? How would I lose the fear of God? How would I lose my keys that would get me into that place? As, as children, the fear of discipline from our parents has prevented us from doing some evil things. Anybody that have godly parents that grew up in a godly home, you know what I'm talking about. There are certain things you didn't do because you feared the punishment or discipline that was coming. Am I telling the truth today? Maybe, you, I mean, you were raised in a different home than what I was. But there's a lot of things that I didn't do because my mother and father put the fear of God in me. But it was actually the fear of mom and dad. But the same should be true in our relationship with God. We should fear His discipline and therefore seek to live our lives in a way that pleases Him. Because if I don't, I'm in rebellion against God. And if I don't, and I lose this fear of God, if I lose this fear of